listening to Impact Insights, a communications podcast by the Impact Agency. Hello, everybody. This is the Impact Insights podcast. I'm Nicole Webb, the CEO of the Impact Agency. And with me is Francis Swire, the General Manager. Hi, Fry. Hello, Nicole. Nice to be back. Nice to be back. Um, for those of you that are listening in WA, South Australia, Tasmania, Queensland, we hate you all. <laughs> no, we don't. You just don't understand us. We're misunderstood. <laughs> We're a bit like the Victorians, except the poor Victorians. Have it even yeah. worse. They have yeah. it even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So get your vaccination rates up in those states, please, so we can open up our international borders. I think New South Wales is going to get to about 95% double vaxxed, I think, looking at the latest news. Yeah, projecting to be that based on first doses. And um, we're not waiting for the other states. We're opening our international borders on the 1st of December. In fact, I could fly to Fiji before I can go to Queensland at this rate. So well, I, I am slightly confused, though. We're getting mixed messages. Our new Premier, Perite, um said, yes, borders are open. And then a couple of hours later, our Prime Minister um, said, no, they're not. So, and then they, he went, sorry, open? mate, you're from Canberra, I'm yeah. from Sydney, I, you know, <laughs> I'll make the call about Sydney. <laughs> Look, Virgin and Qantas went, excellent, okay, let's go, we've got flights, start booking everybody. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. So what are we, we're week three out of lockdown? Yeah, since we hit the 70%, which was that first milestone, and both Victoria and New South Wales have thought those two milestones of 70% and 80% double vaxxed were going to be a few weeks apart, but interestingly, they truncated and and it hit 70 and then it hit 80 very soon after, Um, and Victoria is set to open up quite substantially at their 80% mark this week, so it's very exciting to see, particularly um, as you said, the you know lived experience of New South Wales and Victoria versus other parts of the nation has been quite different. And we talked in the podcast before about how none of us would really ever understand what Melbourne went through last year. And having gone through it, <laughs> funnily, funnily enough, we did end up going through something similar this year, but then they did again. So I think my girlfriend who has uh, school-aged children was saying she clocked up something around 200 and something days of remote learning um, since last year with her two boys. So, yeah, it makes me feel like, oh, the 106 days or whatever it was that we had this year feels quite small in comparison to that. So really hoping that this reopening, the language that's being used is suggesting that this is the last of the big, long lockdowns. But looking around the world, we can see that there's sort of varying success and decision-making going on about whether that is sustainable, depending on where you hit on your vax rates and your boosters and so on. Well, that's a nice um, segue into our topic for the day, is um, communicating out of out of lockdown or communicating post-COVID. And one of the um, areas that we wanted to discuss today was around internal comms and, you know, we're hearing, you know, our client Gartner has been very vocal about this recently as well, um, talking to some recruiters. We're going to be seeing a lot of mass resignations or... Mm, um, they're mass- calling it the, the great resignation. The, oh, the great resignation. Okay. Yeah, there's some staggering numbers coming out of the US of... Um, like millions of people quitting their job without one to go to. Now, we should probably preface this with this is largely um, a pattern that is uh, connected to 
traditionally white collar or service based um, jobs. Um, those who have the are in the fortunate position that they can choose to stop work without having that next job to go to, um, because they've spent a lot of time reassessing their life. Um, and I think that, yeah, Gartner's stat said something like 85% of employees globally are saying that they've experienced burnout in the last year and more than half reported worse work-life balance despite all the positives that have been extensively discussed about working from home. And I think in Australia, outside of Melbourne last year, we largely got kind of the best of both worlds, silver lining side of the pandemic. Whereas this year, the realities of being stuck working from home and not having contact with other people and not necessarily getting the fulfilment out of your job that you may have before has made people reassess what they actually want to do, where they want to live, how they want to live their lives. So if you're an organisation then, what do you need to be doing to make sure you don't have that great, what is massive, not massive. The great, the great, the great resignation. The great, the great resignation. Mm. So how, what do we do? I mean, we've, we've talked about this, about, you know, some retention strategies. Um, we've been very flexible. We're not telling people that they have to come back to the office just yet. It's And also it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that we've explored with a couple of clients recently, actually, we've done a, a fair bit of work in this area, is around choices in mindset and language of from leaders um, having a huge impact on employees and how they're feeling and responding to the current situation, whether it's a very open situation in the states that haven't been as affected or whether it's a very sort of closed experience like in um, Victoria and New South Wales. And what we're hearing is that there are some leaders who have the mindset of let's get back to normal, that they've got this really strong attachment to the certainty of what they used to know and used to understand as the guardrails of the workplace, you know, the physicality of the workplace, the hours, the sense of physically seeing people as a reassuring factor in understanding who was doing what and when with without having to micromanage, they haven't been able to shift and find a comfortable spot in this hybrid or virtual workforce workplace. And so they're just so they're just gagging to get back, get back, get back. Um, maybe some of them are trying to uplift their team by glossing over it, go, oh, you know, but we're all doing okay. And it was, you know, it's bumping the road, but we'll get back. And the reality is a lot of people are like, no, actually, life has changed forever. <laughs> or maybe they're somewhere in between and they're just feeling, you know, a little bit unsure. Oh, so it's the exhausted. idea. We're exhausted. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. And then some of us have really felt it like um and I think I don't know about you Nicole but coming out of uh in the last couple of weeks has also been strange like socially and personally <laughs> we talked about this yesterday <laughs> and um so my, any, go, anyone... my, go, my go-to is so what have you been watching on Netflix <laughs> <laughs> it's like speed dating like yeah. how do we how do we start talking but for someone like me and anyone who listens to this podcast would not be surprised um when I'm nervous, I just fill the silence with lots and lots of words. <laughs> so. All right. So can I share our, very, our first <laughs> meeting? Yes. So Francis came over to um, my house for a meeting. <laughs> were you, you were there for an hour maybe, maybe a bit longer? Yeah. yeah. I could not get a word in edgewise. <laughs> Francis spoke for a whole hour. Then she left. 
I had to lie down on the couch afterwards. <laughs> so these, as as businesses, we have to be aware there are Francis's in every workplace <laughs> and you could need to protect your staff from the onslaught that they're not ready for because they've been in a quiet little cocoon for a couple of months. <laughs> But yeah, I think, and then I had another friend who was like booking things up the wazoo. She was like, let's do this and this and this and this. And then in the same friendship group, I had one that was like still under the doona going, nah, not ready, not coming out. So it just demonstrates that people are experiencing things differently. They're going to be coming out differently and that that won't be temporary, that for some people that's going to stick. So engaging with your staff and co-designing what the next looks like is going to be critical to not losing them. And also, I think a lot of leaders need to resign themselves, pardon the pun, to the fact that they are going to lose some people and there's literally nothing that they can do about it. They can put their best efforts in, but they also need to acknowledge that if that individual is not motivated or, you know, excited about that role or that profession anymore, then that's okay and they're going to need to work through that. So probably planning for movement and change within your team, um, but in a caring way. I think that there's no no one's got any energy left for, you know, resentment and frustration with their co-workers right now. We need to treat each other with kindness. I really like that um, terminology used to co-design. I think that's going to, going to be really important that um, – I don't know whether it's the HR departments or whoever the leadership team within an organisation mm. actually ask their staff and their their employees what is it that they would like to do? How would they would like? How would they like to work over the next, you know, maybe the rest of the time while they're at the at that at that organisation? Mm. I think that's really mm. important that we do that. And, it, and it's funny this time round for us, all of our previous sort of coming out of lockdown timings have been moving into an environment where there's statistically COVID zero. This is the first time as a nation we're reopening ourselves at a time when we know there are hundreds or even thousands of active cases in the community because now it's about living with this disease, which has been happening around the world for some time. But because we had that protection shield before, we kept thinking, oh, we'll get it back to zero and then we're out again and then we can do whatever we like. So for some of um, our team members, we understand, you know, their personal Health and circumstances are different. Perhaps the, there's immunocompromised people within their household. Um, so their risk profile and appetite for risk is going to be different to others and being empathetic to that and then also looking to find a way that there is some consensus where it's valuable that a team can work together to align their, you know, cadence of their work hours or when we get to a point that everyone feels comfortable, you know, do we want to have agreed days that because we're not a you know multi thousand dollar thousand people business you know we're, we're a team of under 15 so we can navigate it a bit with a bit more agility I think than the bigger guys whereas if you're looking at thousands of employees you really need to think about the full breadth of options and what's going to work for those people yeah it's a good point so then We've looked at it from um, an employee point of view coming back out of out of COVID. What about from a consumer point of view? We know that um, there's a few stats here. Let me read these out. That uh, total internet hits have surged by up to 70% during COVID. More than 40% of consumers spent more time on social media. 
global social media ad spend was up 50.3%. This is streaming has jumped by at least 12%. I question that figure. I reckon it went up. <laughs> per, per, per service? Per streaming service? Well, it seems a little bit light on to me. Um, 53% of people have been reading more books or listening to audiobooks at home. 18% listen to more radio. The video gaming industry rose by 80%, alarmingly. Um, and one in four online purchases have now been made by a, um, a social media platform. So some of the things that we think um, our clients and companies, brands, should be looking at um, coming out of COVID this time around, um, trust and transparency. It's It's been really important, particularly over the last two years, and it's not going to go away, is it? Mm, no, definitely not. And how you achieve those things isn't necessarily about, you know, virtue signalling or progressive stances on things. That's not necessarily what we mean by trust and transparency. Having an omni-channels approach to a customer experience is about trust and transparency. Okay, what I experience online is what I can expect to see and experience when and if I'm comfortable and ready to go back into a store. Um, that that's an important factor as well. Uh, I think that it being online more accelerated, um, more organisations' investment in a, a better online shopping experience. But if I'm honest, I think I was just searching for a dopamine hit every now and then. I was actually pretty conservative this uh, this time round. I managed to put heaps of stuff in my cart and not purchase very much of it. But I think just that act of putting it in a cart, I was like, oh, I'm getting, that feels good. Oh, but I don't really need it, so I'm not going to get it. But then when the shops reopened, I went out and I did a four-hour stint at a big shopping centre which at, if you'd asked me three weeks earlier if I would do that, I would have said, no, I was too scared. But then once I rationalised it, realised the rules they had around capacity, that there was a person at the front door of every single store checking VAC certificates, they were monitoring the number of people in each store, I actually felt like... All wearing masks. All wearing yeah. masks, um, all retail stores. I was like, actually, this is probably one of the safer places I could be versus you know, doing my Woolies shop or walking down the main road. So, yeah, and I think in that experience, it was just like, I need to try something on and I need to have a person in a shop ask me what I need and cater to my needs. Like, it just felt really nice to not self-serve everything, if that makes sense. And and I think I've even avoided going to self-serve checkouts. I'm like, no, I'm lining up. I want someone to scan my stuff. <laughs> I'm sick of doing everything for myself. I've made a million meals a day for the last three months. I want someone to do something for me. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so funny. <laughs> the other subject that I want to talk around, um, consumer experiences coming out of COVID, coming out of the pandemic and going back into the shops is around empathy. We know that... 40% of Australian households had to adjust to a decline in household income. 600,000 people uh, lost their jobs because mm. of the pandemic. I mean, this is we've got to we've got to keep this in the back of our minds when we're communicating. The um, you've got to have empathy for everything that's gone before. You can't just pretend it didn't happen. It's a bit like uh, those employers that want everybody. Come on, let's get back to work. Mm. Let's get back to how it was. It, we can't go back to how it was. It, the, the world has changed, and I think. Um, brands, marketers, they all need to understand that it's not going to go back to how it was. Mm. 
And the community more broadly too, right? Like I think that Australia's probably always had a bit of a nasty and one-dimensional stigma on long-term unemployed Australians. And the pandemic has made people realise just how easily someone can be put into that position um, without, you know, without wrongdoing, without them actively, you know, contributing to the situation. And one of the clients that we work with that do amazing work here is Generation Australia and they help people who experience barriers to employment through education to employment pathways. And when they launched, it was before the pandemic and there were, you know, a number of vulnerable groups within the community that they were working with. And then all of a sudden we had a new audience um, that we called, you know, recently displaced. And they had a real crisis of identity because they'd never been unable to get paid work before. They'd always had some form of job security. Even if they were in the gig economy, they had consistent work. And the reality is that that's not the case for a lot of people in our society. So when you talk about empathy, I I hope that some of those aspects endure too, that we don't judge people quickly based on whether or not they've been able to access employment in the last few years, because you never really know what's going on in people's lives. And Sure, we all shared the pandemic as an experience, but everyone lived it quite differently. No, absolutely. Oh, there's truffle barking again. <laughs> While we've got a barking dog, this doesn't really fit as a vignette, but I'm really worried about, like, the dogs of New South Wales and Victoria. If we do go back to work, we also yeah. have to think about the dogs, like, and so the, many the dogs. people who have bought the dogs so or many dogs. rescued the dogs who are like, yep. how the hell do I leave the house without my dog? They're going to be beside themselves. And as as someone who owns a dog with separation anxiety, it's not fun. <laughs> Look, it's probably, it's probably not quite as big. I mean, we do have millions of dog owners across Australia. So I guess, yeah, employers should be like concerns and then there's family, pets. Pets, maybe that's something that they should put up there as like, is this a consideration in how you'd like to um, consider coming to the physical workplace versus the virtual one? I reckon a few people would tick that. <laughs> Doggy daycare. We're, we're a dog-friendly office. We are a dog-friendly office. It's lovely. Truffle came in with me yesterday. She's very happy in there with, um, with Maddie. And finally, just wanted to talk about this whole localness. Is that, is that a word? Local, Local. Localism. Localism is a really better word, much better word than, than, than mine. Thank you very much. <laughs> if I could learn to speak English, that would be also awesome. Um, we've all been working from home. We've been shopping at our local shops. We've been supporting the local um, the local community. How can brands tap into that, do you think, Fry? I think, um, you know, I know I've been keeping the local coffee shop here in uh, Stanmore, Mrs Underwood, um, in business. Mm makes the best coffee, makes the best sandwiches. So, yeah, what, what can brands do to help? Um, we're actually working on a campaign um, with an organisation at the moment that for a really long time has invested in a local community, a local community and manufacturing facility and basically making products specifically for Australian taste and the Australian community. So they're not 
uh, products that get exported. It's just stuff that is consumed here in Australia. And uh, we're doing a campaign around this local, local uh, lovely localism. Look, now I can't talk. It's catching. Uh, lovely localism. And what they're doing is partnering with a community organisation in a number of cities across the country to celebrate um, the community spirit and what those towns are known for um, and providing grants to those communities to invest in the things that the community find to be important um, and really just trying to spotlight on the power of community spirit and how it's particularly through the bushfires and the floods and the pandemic, how it's been such a strong element of how we've been able to endure. So that's one example. The other thing I was thinking of is something that can be tricky for organi- for brands is to consider how how do I tap into that? It's such a disparate distribution system. It's like tricky for me to get into lots of communities. But if you look at a brand like American Express, they've had a really successful a platform that they've built over time, you know, not just recently, around encouraging um, people who hold American Express cards to shop locally by actively increasing the number of local smaller businesses that accept American Express. So that's had a two-pronged effect of, you know, increasing their footprint in terms of um, places you can use the card, but they've obviously created a new tier of customers so that it's not cost prohibitive from a merchant fee perspective, yet they're also then investing in the local community because you get extra reward points if you shop locally with your Amex card. It's a really, really good case study. If anyone's um, interested in that, they should um, check it out. One of the other things that um, I've noticed I've been doing is is looking to see where things are made. Mm. So when I've been purchasing, as you know, um, I have purchased a house online <laughs> during, the during you can buy anything online really, now. <laughs> yeah, I know. So it's taking online shopping to to the extreme. And um, but what I've been doing when I've been looking at you know furniture, for example, really um, looking at where things are made. I, I want to make sure: can I buy locally? Can I buy Australian made? And maybe that is something that um, that brands, marketers should be looking at. How, what component of this product is made here that we can celebrate? Mm, there's a, an incredible um, market that's also, it's online at the moment, but hoping to reboot in 2022 called Handmade. Uh, it's a big, huge quarterly market that occurs in Canberra and people come from all over the country to exhibit there and sell goods. And you can only participate in that market if it's Australian made. So everything that's there and um, it has grown year on year and even through COVID has continued to be quite successful through virtual markets. So that demonstrates that desire for people to consider where their goods are coming from um, and how every element of that supply chain, like where your dollars are going. So, you know, as much as we love the convenience of the mass produced stuff and um, understand that we need to have links to goods manufactured all around the world, I think that where you can consider Australian made, it's definitely been something that we've leaned into once we realised just how many things on the shelves were coming from overseas when the, during that pandemic when there were delays and you walked into shops and there was like empty shelves everywhere, it made you realise. Yeah, mm. just mental. Um, unless you've got something else to say, Francis. I'm really excited today. I'm getting my hair cut for the first oh time in what, five months. So, um, 
Yeah, I've got to go. You could go. <laughs> <laughs> that is so exciting. I know. Yeah. I'm. I'm. My appointment is still coming up, and I think I'm going to be at about the six month mark by the time I get there. And I don't know if it's worth going back to blonde because I'm about half brunette now. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm half grey, so <laughs> definitely not going grey. <laughs> All right, so um, let's wrap that up. Um, I'm Nicole Webb, the CEO of the Impact Agency, and with me is Francis Dwyer. We hope you have a lovely week wherever you may be, and um, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, see you. Bye. Bye.